You are listening to Stories from Real Life, a podcast by engaging storytellers for engaged story listeners. Here's your host, author and journalist, Melvin E. Edwards. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Stories from Real Life. I'm your host, Melvin E. Edwards, and I'm joined on today's storytelling journey by a man of many talents. He's a Navy veteran, retired pastor, novelist, and artifact hunter. He's also taught U.S. and world history for over 30 years, so that's the direction I would like to guide this discussion. I love history, and I'm always open to opportunities to learn a few more details and intricacies about the past. So I'm excited to be joined today by author Lewis Ben Smith. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, it's great to be with you. I appreciate the invitation to be here. All right, good to, good to have you. All right, I became familiar with Lewis because of his 2021 fictional work called President Hamilton, a novel of alternative history. This book is 645 pages, so that requires a lot of imagination for a fictional piece. How long did it take you to write the book, and what was your process as the story developed in your mind? Uh, like I said, I've taught U.S. history since 1991, um, and I was a history major, got my bachelor's and master's before that. Hamilton was always a fascinating figure. He's one of these people, the more I learned about him, the more interesting I found him because, you know, you look at the founding fathers as a group, they mostly were men of privileged backgrounds. Washington and Jefferson were rich Virginia planters. John Adams was a lawyer and a Harvard graduate. Uh, You know, Benjamin Franklin was a self-made man, but he was an entrepreneur and an inventor and one of the wealthier men in uh, Pennsylvania. Hamilton earned everything he ever got by virtue of prodigious work and an amazing intellect and incredible talent. And he was Washington's right-hand man in war and in peace for 20 years, you know, from the American Revolution in the winter of 1776-77 when he first came to Washington's attention, right up until he left Washington's cabinet uh, in uh, 1795, I believe it was. Uh, and remained, I mean, it's interesting, America loves Jeffersonian ideas, but in terms of the way we run our country, in terms of the way we run our economy, to this day, we're living in the country that Alexander Hamilton built. And I always thought he kind of got ripped off that, you know, Jefferson got his turn in the White House, Adams got his, Washington got his, and Hamilton's life was cut short before he could ever reach for that goal. And, um, he did so much to create this country, so much to set our government in place. He was Washington's chief advisor. And the thing is, George Washington was a very intuitive judge of character, and he trusted Alexander Hamilton. And he was not a man who gave trust easily. And I think that was the thing. I think that that Jefferson and Adams never really forgave Hamilton for was that he stood higher in Washington's esteem than they did. And of course, since Hamilton died young, his enemies trashed his reputation for a century after his death. And it really wasn't until the last 30 years that he began to get his due from historians as they analyzed him and found he wasn't really the snobby elitist his enemies made him out to be, that in fact he was a 
an economic genius, and in many ways, a political prophet of the way he thought that America should go. Uh, and so I decided to give him a shot at the White House. Um, and so I started my story with the Hamilton-Burr duel. In my version, Hamilton lives and Burr dies. And then I played it forward from there. What would the country look like? And particularly, what if someone had had the guts and the political moxie to take on slavery 60 years before the Civil War, before it metastasized into a cancer that would nearly kill the country. All right. I don't want you to go too far because I'm going to ask you some questions specific to that issue. Sure, sure. In just a moment. All right. So you obviously have a passion for storytelling and you've got six book novels currently in print and Correct. a portfolio of about 50 short stories that have published on your blog over the last decade. When did you know you wanted to be a writer and do you consider yourself a writer first or historian first? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> I started writing my first book in high school. Now, it was dreadful. I filled about four <laughs> loose leaf notebooks full of this epic story of a World War, a fictitious World War One flying ace. And when I graduated, I packed it carefully in boxes and told mom and dad not to throw it away. Uh, and I joined the Navy and uh, actually started another epic fantasy story, heavily derivative on Tolkien, when I was in the Navy. Got about 80 pages written in it and discarded it because it was too derivative. And then when I got out of the Navy and came home and set up my, my first home, I went to mom and dad's and got a bunch of my stuff. And uh, I found my first novel sitting there in those four loose leaf notebooks. And I pulled it out and read about one loose leaf notebook worth. And then I put it back up in the attic of the house we were living in. When we moved out in 2002, I left it there. It's probably lining some rodent's nest today, but that's probably where it belongs. Uh, but I always was interested in writing. I did write some pretty good short stories when I was in the Navy. I published one short story in the university magazine when I was in college back in 87 or 88. Uh, and then, uh, I wrote articles for hobby magazines because uh, I collect Indian arrowheads and there was a, a publication called Indian Artifact Magazine. I wrote several dozen articles for them from the late 80s on up through the early, late 90s, early 2000s thereabouts. Uh, and um, But I always want, came back and wanted to write a book and I had a couple of ideas. And so in uh, 2012, I was... I believe that's right. Yeah. 2012 sitting in chapel. And one of the scenarios that I always imagined kind of came to life in my head. And I actually pulled out a, a loose slip of paper in my Bible and started writing down the names of my characters. And uh, I went home that night and wrote about 12 pages before bed, got up an hour early the next morning, wrote five more pages. And that became my first novel, The Testimonium, which was published in 2014. Okay, nice. All right. So the Hamilton uh, book imagines how different the United States might have become if he had become president in the early 19th century, as you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So I want to get back into that. Surely. So in your sequence, Hamilton becomes president and rids the country of slavery without a civil war. So under that scenario, and this is going to require a lot of imagination on your part, under that scenario, which type of real life fallout from the civil war do you think would have become less likely if Hamilton had become president? Well, These are the three options I'm going to give you. Okay. Right, the, the Compromise of 1877, Reconstruction. Actually, it's four. All right, back up. The Compromise of 1877, Reconstruction, Jim Crow, or the Mexican-American War. Okay. Um, now, as I spun it out of my book, first of all, 
the Republican Party as we know it today wouldn't have existed because it came into existence in the 1850s over the territorial expansion of slavery to uh, oppose that. So I don't think you, you wouldn't have had a reconstruction if you hadn't had a war. Uh, and so, so much, I mean, I think it would have drastically changed. And this is the thing, if you look at 1808, which is the year, you know, that there, even if Hamilton had survived the duel of the summer of 1804, there's no way he challenges Jefferson for a second term on such short notice. So in my story, I had him run for the Senate from the state of New York, and that gave him a springboard from which to work towards the presidency. Uh, and Madison, on the other hand, I mean, Madison rode into the White House on Jefferson's coattails, and because after the death of Hamilton, the Federalist Party was already falling apart. Hamilton could have given Madison a run for his money. I mean, several people have said, well, Hamilton was a lousy politician. He might not could have done it, you know, uh, but uh, when you look at, the thing I looked at was in the battle for ratification of the Constitution, Hamilton single-handedly shifted New York from being anti to pro. He, he swung the New York state legislature pretty much by himself to support of the new Constitution. And so I think when he had a goal in mind that he was working towards, he could be as political as the situation required. And, uh, you know, in my story, I kind of gave him a little, a little boost, you know, a little God in the machine in the form of a vision that he had after he was wounded in the duel where he foresaw the devastation of the Civil War and set himself to avert it. But the thing is, slavery was not as entrenched. It was not as widespread. Mississippi had not joined the Union yet. Louisiana had not, was only a territory. And the South wasn't as wholesale dependent on cotton as it would later become. And so slavery wasn't as metastasized. You know, when you look at it, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe were all Virginia slave owners, and they each served eight years in the presidency. So that's 24 years that Southerners ran the government. John Quincy Adams, when he becomes president in the 1824 election, he was isolated. Uh, He was, you know, I think he was anti-slavery at heart. He became a leader of the abolitionist movement later on in life. But he was so unpopular and politically isolated because of the circumstances surrounding his election, he couldn't do anything. And I think really by 1824, it was too late. Then you have eight years of Andrew Jackson uh, and, you know, you you have four years of Martin Van Buren, but he was Jackson's fair haired boy. And then you have more Southerners in the White House. So slavery just got so deeply entrenched so early you couldn't root it out. But in 1808, there still might have been a chance, you know. Much of the revolutionary generation was still alive. And I think many of them, even Jefferson, if you read his writings, he couldn't rid himself of slavery, but he recognized it as an evil. You know, later on, thinking on slavery kind of in 1860, and it went from being the necessary evil to the positive good by the 1830s and 40s. And by then, there was no way the South was going to give it up without a fight. And even as it was, it wasn't terribly easy. But yeah, I think a lot of things would be different. There would have been no need for Reconstruction. Uh, I think the festering racial hatred of Jim Crow, which was fueled by the struggles over Reconstruction, might never have come to pass. I mean, it would be a vastly different country if we had managed to root out slavery 60 years before the Civil War. All right, so let's back up just a little bit. Sure thing. So the reason Alexander Hamilton was alive to run for president in this alternate history is because he killed Aaron Burr during the famous duel. Mm-hmm. And of course, and likely because of the Broadway musical, most people know that Hamilton was the one who was killed. Mm-hmm. But here, Burr's shot merely wounds Hamilton 
and Hamilton's return shot kills the vice president. Mm-hmm. So my my question is, as a former pastor, in addition to being a historian and an author, I'm wondering if you've imagined a scenario where Aaron Burr's famous grandfather, who was Jonathan Edwards, mm-hmm. had influenced him to be more humble and less envious and self-seeking. How, how that might have changed. And that would be interesting. I mean, Burr, of course, the musical made him to be a far more sympathetic figure in many ways than he is in real life. Uh, um, best book I've read on Aaron Burr was called American Emperor. Um, and I don't remember the author off the top of my head, but it was a very good read. You know, Jonathan Edwards died relatively young. He was a brilliant man in, in many ways, almost like Benjamin Franklin. Uh, and he died as a result of trying to give himself an experimental smallpox vaccine that gave himself smallpox and killed him. Had he been around to be a bigger influence and had Burr been less of a hedonistic scoundrel uh, and uh, a better Christian, boy, that changes everything. Um, because uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't think you would have seen the duel in the first place. And I certainly don't think you would have seen Aaron Burr tried for treason later on. Um, but, um, you know, Hamilton and Burr knew each other. They weren't, you know, besties turned frenemies turned enemies the way the musical portrayed them, but they moved in and out of each other's orbit for some 20 years before the duel, you know, starting in the revolution, you know, they joined Washington staff around about the same time. Burr lasted 12 days. I don't know what it was Washington saw in him, but, uh, Washington gave him the boot pretty quickly. Nobody really talked about why. On the other hand, Hamilton probably would have served as Washington's chief of staff throughout the entire revolution had he not quit briefly in a huff there in 1781 uh, because he wanted a field command and Washington wouldn't give him one and it became a point of friction. But even then, when Washington went south to deal with Cornwallis at Yorktown, he called Hamilton and gave him the command he'd always wanted and Hamilton played that leading role. So yeah, a, a, a kinder, gentler Burr might have led to a totally different outcome, and not only to Hamilton's life, uh, but also to uh, Burr's own life, and he might have wound up being a more admirable character. It's not that he's without admirable qualities. I mean, he was an advocate for women's rights at a time when that was virtually unknown, but he also was a serial philanderer and uh, and scoundrel. Uh, you know, uh, I got to tour last summer the Morris Jumel mansion, which was the home of Aaron Burr in his old age. And basically, he married a rich old widow lady and spent all of her money. And she was in the process of divorcing him when he died. Ironically, her divorce attorney was Alexander Hamilton Jr. Oh wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> At you some point, I would like to. I would like to a lot. <laughs> I could tell. I, I would like to have you back sometime to talk about Jonathan Edwards and Benjamin Franklin because those are two characters who have fascinated me for. 20 I don't know a ton about Edwards. I'm pretty well versed on Franklin's life, but sure. Anytime you want to have me back, I'll be glad to come. All right, sure. That sounds great. So you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I'm wondering how you think a three-way race for president between Burr, Hamilton, and Madison might have turned out head-to-head, three-way hmm. race. Same. Honestly, race. I think Burr and Hamilton probably would have appealed to the same set of voters. They were both New Yorkers for one thing. So they would have split the New York electoral votes most likely. More than likely in that scenario, I think it does tip the White House to James Madison, who of course is who won the election in our timeline because his opponent, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney from South Carolina, just didn't have the wide appeal and didn't have the stamp of approval of Thomas Jefferson. 
excuse me, uh, Jefferson was the obstacle that Hamilton would have had to work around. Uh, and, you know, that was one that there are two moments in the book that I really like. One is shortly after Rick, he recovers from the duel, Hamilton rides down to Monticello and has a lengthy talk with Jefferson about some of the garbage that Jefferson had been spreading about him. Uh, and basically says, look, we're, we're not going to be in agreement on ideas, but can we get rid of this idea that I'm a closet monarchist? Uh, and then the other moment, because uh, if Hamilton was going to have any chance at all in 1808, he had to have the votes of New England, which is a Federalist stronghold. And of course, the elder statesman of New England was John Adams, and Adams hated Hamilton with a passion. Uh, the music kind, musical kind of touched on that, Basically, you know, under Washington, even after the Reynolds scandal, Hamilton was still a favored, uh, you know, member of Washington's inner circle of advisors. And um, this isn't widely known, but there was a threat of war with France. And so John Adams called mm -hmm. Washington back to command the army again after he was president. Washington was old. He agreed on two conditions. One, he would only take the field if there was actually an invasion to deal with. And secondly, would be uh, that if Hamilton was appointed second in command. A lot of revolutionary generals didn't like that because Hamilton was junior to them. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, Washington made that stick. And so Hamilton was promoted to major general over the head of about 16 officers senior to him. And with Washington in retirement, he became the de facto head of the army. And then when the threat of invasion faded, Hamilton briefly was the senior general of the U.S. Army until Adams fired him. And uh, so in 1800, when Adams was running for re-election, um, he wound up, um, Hamilton just thought Adams was a terrible choice. And so he wrote this 60-page pamphlet, which was intended to be circulated only among the leaders of the Federalist Party. Uh, but it wound up finding its way into broad release. And basically, the pamphlet was 40 pages trashing John Adams and telling the Federalists to pick someone else, uh, preferably General Pinckney, to run for president. And then the last 20 pages were as bad as Adams is. Jefferson is even worse. So if it comes down to the two, then we need to support Adams. Uh, it was uh, it was a, a mess. And of course, Adams believed that Hamilton cost him the presidency and for the rest of his life, he could not refer to Hamilton without resulting to just some pretty vile insults. Uh, the bastard brat of a Scots peddler. Uh, he accused Hamilton of sleeping with his wife and all of her sisters and uh, said he had, what was it, uh, such an abundance of natural juices that all the horrors of New York would not be enough for him. Uh, and none of that is true. I mean, so far as we know, Hamilton strayed from his marital vows one time, uh, the infamous uh, Reynolds affair that was uh, publicized in the musical. And that was really, most scholars think, an absolute setup by James Reynolds and his wife in collusion with each other. Uh, but anyway, uh, but yeah, where Hamilton goes north to Massachusetts and settles things with John Adams, that chapter 10 is probably my favorite chapter in the whole book. Uh, because it just gives you an idea of, of, first of all, how much resentment and hatred was there. And secondly, you know, when someone who is a proud man himself has to go eat a little bit of crow and make up with a former enemy in order to achieve the goal he wants. But really, a lot of my, my books are themed around the idea of redemption, whether it be political or personal, about second chances and reconciling enemies, because goodness knows we need more of that. 
Yes, absolutely. No question about that. <clears throat> uh, let's imagine Hamilton through the years. Do you think he would have been a, had a bigger philosophical feud with Andrew Jackson or Andrew Johnson? Uh, I don't think he would have liked either of them very much. Uh, Andrew Jackson, he would have regarded as a, a poorly educated, dangerous demagogue. And Andrew Johnson, you know, Johnson is generally rated as one of the worst presidents in American history. I mean, at least Andrew Jackson had some accomplishments and tried to broaden the voting franchise. You know, Johnson worked to restrict it, basically undermined everything Lincoln had done. Uh, I don't think Hamilton would have really liked either of them very much. Probably maybe a little bit more respect for Andrew Jackson because Jackson was a brave soldier uh, and they had a common enemy in the British. Now, we know historically, even though one of Hamilton's sons worked for President Jackson, Jackson himself did not have a strong opinion, uh, a positive opinion of Alexander Hamilton at all. Uh, and in fact, uh, he said that Burr had rid the country of a cancer when he heard of Hamilton's death. Uh, so... Um, but again, you know, for 50 years after Hamilton died, his wife and sons were the only ones who tried to keep his reputation going. Both the, the Southern politicians dumped on him because he was a Northerner, he was anti-slavery, he was a banker, he was a financial guy. And the Adams clan, you know, uh, any insult that would stick. As a matter of fact, uh, Stephen Knott talks about this in his book, Alexander Hamilton and the Persistence of Myth. The one quote that was attributed to Hamilton that really damned him in the history books was when speaking of the American public, uh, he supposedly said, your mob, sir, is one great beast, except there's not a shred of evidence from any contemporary that he ever said that. That pops up in the writings of Henry Adams, John Adams' great-grandson, over 60 years after Hamilton died. But by the 20th century, it was in all the history books that Hamilton hated the common people and thought they were idiots. Um, and I think he had a little bit more faith in the American people than that. Yeah, I got one more similar scenario. <clears throat> Would he have had a bigger philosophical feud with Teddy Roosevelt or Franklin Roosevelt? Ooh, you know, both it probably Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, in many ways, carried Alexander Hamilton's ideas forward. And he actually wrote some very positive things about Hamilton. On the other hand, FDR being a populist and trying to appeal to Southerners, uh, you know, FDR had a rather negative opinion of Hamilton. Um, but also, if you look at FDR, at Theodore Roosevelt, a dynamic executive working to rein in big business, uh, you know, one of the things, of course, Hamilton's portrayed as a tool of the bankers and industrialists. I've had people at book signings tell me he was working for the Rothschilds or that he sold us out to the British. I mean, the man risked his life fighting the British to free us from British rule. His only thing was, look, Britain's the most successful economic power in the world for a reason. We can borrow from them the things that work. There's no need to throw out the baby with the bathwater. So the Bank of the United States was modeled on the Bank of England, but it was also so we would not be dependent on the Bank of England. We would have our own national bank, our own means of paying down our debt, our own line of credit without having to borrow from foreigners. Uh, really, I think Hamilton and Jefferson were working at the same thing from different angles. They both wanted America to be independent of relying on foreign powers. Jefferson believed we could do that by growing enough food to feed the whole world. He said, let our factories remain in Europe 
as long as we supply the world with cotton and food crops, we can buy all the things we need from them. Hamilton, on the other hand, said, you know, we have to have our factories here. We have to be a country of strong manufacturing and strong agriculture. And and time has borne that out. Like I said, we, we love Jeffersonian ideas, but we're very much living in the country that Hamilton built economically. Okay. So other than his face being on the $10 bill today, what do you want people to remember most about Alexander Hamilton? What a remarkable man he was. I mean, just the level of talent. I mean, you know, they, they touch on that in the musical. I wish they'd gone in a little further, but like the Federalist Papers, the Constitution was headed to defeat. People were suspicious of creating a presidency. They were suspicious of all these other things. Too much power to the federal government, not enough power to the states, no Bill of Rights. And Madison and Hamilton, before they became rival foes, before Madison got permanently sucked into Jefferson's orbit, um, they worked together along with John Jay, and the plan was to write about 25 essays defending and explaining the new Constitution. They wound up writing 81. John Jay wrote five. Madison wrote 29. Well, Jay got sick. He had to bow out because he nearly died. Madison wrote 29 of the Federalist Papers. Hamilton wrote 51 papers in six months. And if you read the Federalist Papers, I mean, dense, carefully worded legal arguments, incredible prescience, a remarkable degree of foresight. And the thing about uh, people who've actually looked at Hamilton's original papers have told me that there's no cross outs and corrections. There's no second drafts. I mean, it just flowed from his pen clean and crisp and ready for publication. Even Jefferson commented that as long as Hamilton could hold a pen, he was a host unto himself. Wow. That's that's impressive as a writer to one take Jake. We're going to have to call him as a nickname. <laughs> I, I have to do that. That's, that's so pretty many impressive. Corrections on my work. So you know, my goal with President Hamilton was, first of all, to tell a good story and also to do justice uh, to the memory of a remarkable man. And uh, One of the things I'm proudest of is that a number of Hamilton biographers and historians have given my work the thumbs up. Rand Cholet, who was the founder of the Alexander Hamilton Awareness Society, adored the book. One of my great personal losses. I met Rand that spring. The book was scheduled to come out in July. The book was released. I sent him a couple of copies and uh, he said, I'm going on vacation at the end of July, but when I get back into August, I'm going to work with you. He had connections all over the country. He said, I'm going to help you promote this book for the rest of the year. He got home from his vacation in July and dropped dead of heart attack. And oh, uh, no. I mean, I tried to build some of my own connections in the scholarly world, but I didn't have Rand's connections or his resources. And so the book didn't do as well as we hoped it would, but it still probably sold more copies in less time than any of my books. I'm also pleased to say that I got to uh, meet a couple of Hamilton's descendants. Uh, Doug Hamilton, yes. who is a five times grandson, wrote a brief forward for my book. And Mary Ann Hamilton, who is the widow of Alexander's great, great grandson. <clears throat> and I have to give her a shout out here. She just published her first book at age 89. Uh, it's called wow. Destined to be a Hamilton. Yes. And it's her remarkable life story. But yes, she was married to Alexander Hamilton's uh, great, great grandson. Uh, His name was uh, uh, Lawrence Morgan Hamilton. Uh, So, you know, Hamilton's friend, John Lawrence for the musical, they kept that name in the family as a way of showing how much he meant. And he was also a grandson. He was a great grandson of Alexander Hamilton. 
and a grandson of J.P. Morgan because the Hamilton and Morgan clans are married. Uh, but uh, so Marianne tells her story in that book. And like I said, she's become a dear friend. I call her on a pretty regular basis. Um, and uh, her story is pretty remarkable in itself. But yeah, that was that was my goal. Tell a good story and do justice to the memory of a great man. That's awesome. I've, I've started the book, but I need I need to get it finished. One of my goals for 2024 is to read more. I've got a bunch of books behind me that I haven't read yet. That's that's well, what see, my twenty twenty four goal is to do my uh, uh, to get a publisher for my next book. The publisher that published my first six novels has gone out of business, and also I've kind of decided I'd go as far as I can go as a writer with small independent presses. I want my book to be picked up by one of the big publishing houses, and that means getting an agent. So right now I'm in that stage which writers call query hell. Uh, just, I've got like 15 <laughs> pending queries right now, waiting to hear back from an agent. But, uh, the book that I just finished, I kind of took the idea from president Hamilton, uh, but moved it to another famous American figure whose life was cut short. Uh, and so, uh, this book is called with malice towards none. Uh, and the premise is what if John Wilkes Booth missed? Hmm. Wow. Lots of things would have been different. Oh, maybe for sure. I, well, I was going to say maybe even more than Hamilton, but I, 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 that would be pure speculation on my part. Oh, yeah. Well, no, I, I think the murder of Abraham Lincoln was the greatest loss America ever sustained. Wow. All right. So let's let's switch themes a little bit here. Sure thing. Let's talk about some, some of your other interests. How did you come by the nickname Indiana Smith? Okay. Well, I've collected arrowheads since I was about 12. I was in high school when the Indiana Jones movies came out and I was arrowhead hunting with a friend of mine. Uh, and uh, we were crossing a little narrow tributary Creek uh, of the river we were on. And there was a fallen log. So he scurried across on the log. I followed after him and the thing started to give way. And I grabbed a branch and swung the rest away over and kind of pulled my way up the Creek bank. And he's like, nice. Dude, you're like Indiana Jones. <laughs> Indiana and I was Jones. like Indiana yes. Smith actually. And I'm like that wimp Harrison Ford. I'm not afraid of snakes. <laughs> and it's stuck ever since. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, when I got my first email account back in the dawn of the internet, Indiana Smith one at hotmail.com. Uh, I still use that same email all these years <laughs> later. And uh, it's kind of funny. You can tell the people who knew me as a kid call me Lewis Ben because my dad was brother Ben. And so that has stuck the people who knew me as a teacher. It's Mr. Smith and pretty much everybody who met me online. It's Indy uh, because that's been kind of been my, and that's my YouTube channel is called Indiana Smith. Uh, I invite your uh, listeners to check it out. It's a pretty cool little YouTube channel and a lot. It started as a means to promote my books, but I discovered people were a lot more interested in seeing the cool stuff I find when I'm out collecting fossils and artifacts than they were in hearing me talk about my books. So uh, I got a lot of my uh, adventures in the river on there, and I've got a, a great one coming up because I spent New Year's Eve helping dig up a dinosaur. Wow. So what's the coolest thing you've ever found on one of your adventures? Uh, 1997, my second year at Greenville Christian School, I took a group of seventh graders up to the Sulphur River on a field trip, and we found a complete mosasaur skull washing out the bottom of the river. That's the giant aquatic dinosaur that you saw in Jurassic World. Technically not a true dinosaur. They're a sea lizard, but they got to be 25, 30 feet long, some of them 50 feet long. So, you know, to, to the layman, they're just a water dinosaur. Uh, but anyway, yeah, we excavated that skull, took it out of the river, and it sits in a glass case at my school to this day. Um, 
So that was one of the, one of the cooler things I've ever seen. Yeah, it'd be hard to top that. That's pretty cool. <laughs> All right, so what's your favorite genre to write about? Well, I mean, I am... I love history of all sorts um, and Roman history, particularly not so much the later Roman empire, but the first century BC, first century AD, the crossover from the Republic to the empire uh, and the Julio-Claudian emperors. I love that era. In fact, two of my books are set in ancient Rome, the redemption of Pontius Pilate, uh, which tells the story of the gospels from Pilate's point of view. And then Theophilus, a tale of ancient Rome. You know, Theophilus is the guy that Luke dedicated his gospel to, but we don't know anything about him. We don't even think that's his real name. He's a name in the Bible without a story. So I gave him a story and I wove him in with what was happening during the time of the emperors Claudius and Nero. Um, And so, yeah, those are early Roman history and then the American founding era and the Civil War era. Those are probably three of my my top areas of history. Uh, Who's your favorite lesser known founding father? Oh, good question. Um, of course, you know, the big guys, Washington, Adams, and Jefferson, uh, you know, the, those are on everybody's lips. But uh, some of the, uh, Nathaniel Green, who is one of Washington's most reliable generals uh, and author of a couple of very significant American victories in the latter years of the war. Uh, John Glover, I don't know as much about him as I would like, but he was a a fisherman from Marblehead, Massachusetts, who uh, led a Massachusetts company during Washington's uh, crossing of the Delaware. He supervised the river crossing, and he saved Washington's army multiple times. If you've ever seen the A&E movie, The Crossing, there's a very memorable portrayal uh, of uh, John Glover by the actor Sebastian Roche. And he's one of the most intriguing characters in the whole movie. And the little bit I've read about John Glover, the movie didn't even begin to do him justice. Uh, he was quite the character. Uh, and then like Governor Morris, uh, he is actually the guy who wrote the final draft of our constitution. Uh, he was a one-legged uh, Pennsylvanian, lost a leg in a carriage accident, bit of a playboy, later became America's ambassador to France during the Revolutionary Era. He was actually, he succeeded Jefferson and was over in France during the Reign of Terror. Um, and uh, just really a remarkable character. Uh, but, uh, and uh, like I said, if you look at the U.S. Constitution in the National Archives, if you actually see it, that's Governor Morris's handwriting. Okay. <clears throat> What's your favorite genre to read? We talked about as a writer. Oh, what do you, what do you like to read on your free time? Uh, I read a lot of biographies. Um, you know, right now I'm uh, reading through a biography of Gerald Ford. Uh, love a good thriller. Uh, read a great many. Uh, I, I love uh, uh, the Agent Pendergast novels by Preston and Childs. That's a favorite series of mine. Harry Turtle does alternative history books. Uh, he was the one who really got me interested in alternative history. He did a whole incredible series about what the 20th century would have looked like if the South won its independence in 1862. Uh, the Great War American Front is the first book in that series. Very much okay. worth reading. Uh, uh, in many ways, it makes you grateful for the timeline we live in. Um, so those, and of course, uh, I, I, I'm a sucker for a good horror story. I've read just about everything that Stephen King ever wrote. Um, he's a genius. I mean, a, you know, his his stories are kind of dark and twisted, but, you know, I, I've written my share. If you get on my blog, uh, you know, I've written a lot of short fiction that are horror stories. Uh, it's a fun genre to write. But uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, like I said, I'm pretty eclectic in my reading taste. Also, just uh, 
I have to give a shout out. Colleen McCullough's novels of ancient Rome are brilliant. Uh, a lot of times with okay. historical fiction, the great danger is you make your historical characters into modern people wearing tights or togas or whatever. They don't think and act. Her Romans think and act like Romans. She spent years burying herself in the primary sources, uh, Plutarch and Pliny and the works of Julius Caesar himself, the letters of Cicero. And so she captures the mindset of ancient Rome very well in that whole Masters of Rome series. They're great big, thick, chunky books, but there's like seven books in the series, and I've read all of them probably four or five times now. I reread them every two or three oh, years. Nice. Okay. I just have a couple more questions to wind down this conversation today. So we're in January now, 2024. So I'm curious if you have any New Year's resolutions that you're you're planning for the year. Uh, my biggest one is to see my Lincoln book in print. You know, my life goal, whether I hit it this year or not, is to have one book of mine actually reach a national audience. And, you know, maybe not New York Times bestseller list, but at least... You know, sell enough to earn me a little recognition, um, you know, uh, because I think that the most any of my books have sold has been maybe uh, 1,200 copies or so. I would really like to have one book actually take off and, you know, might maybe even be, you know, Daydream here, Netflix miniseries, something like that. I mean, President Hamilton would make a fantastic miniseries. Any Netflix showrunners out there had get a hold of me. We can do this. <laughs> yeah. Give him a call. We'll hook you, we'll hook you up with him. All right. So final question here today. All right. So can you tell my my listeners how they can follow you on social media and then how they can get copies of your book so we can get the sales up closer to all six right. figures? Well, uh, all my books are available <laughs> on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere that uh, anywhere books are sold online. Uh, my blog kind of log winded. It's uh, Lewis Literary Lair at blogspot.com. Uh, also, I am on a uh, Twitter, author Indy Smith. My YouTube channel is called Indiana Smith. Uh, I've got a, a, a Lewis Ben Smith author page on Facebook. Um, so I'm pretty much active on all social medias. One of the things I will say, I've at least gained enough notoriety that if you research my full name on Google, I'm like in the pop 10 things that pop up. <laughs> the first page is all me. <laughs> uh, now, if you leave out my oh, middle nice. name, there's a bunch of other Lewis Smiths out there. But, you're, you're just you're just you're just one of the one of the Smiths. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of us. <laughs> All right. So today our guest has been author Lewis Ben Smith. If you look him up and with his full name, you'll you'll find all that on Google. And we talked about his alternative history novel, President Hamilton. And he gave us a view into what that life might have been like. So, Lewis, th thank you. I appreciate you joining me today. And I've enjoyed this conversation. All right. Thanks a lot. All right, that's it for today's episode of Stories from Real Life. Join us again next time for another storytelling journey. Until then, don't forget to shine some light wherever you go. That was another edition of Stories from Real Life with your host, Melvin E. Edwards. Join us again next time for more stories about more things than you can imagine. Some of those true stories may even be about real life. See you next time.